hey, this is Ed. So this is a podcast, is that right? This is. Okay. We're officially podcasting right now. That's awesome. This is Straight from the Cutter's Mouth. Straight from the Cutter's Mouth is now back with an episode centered around this year's American Academy of Ophthalmology annual meeting and subspecialty day. Uh, specifically, Retina Subspecialty Day is this a Retina podcast, so apologies to all you huge fans of the glaucoma subspecialty day that will not be referenced in this podcast. Uh, joining me in alphabetical order, first, Dr. Sriji Patel from Nashville, Tennessee. Hey, thanks for having me on. Uh, I get really anxious and nervous when I start thinking about the rest of the alphabet, but Dr. Basil Williams from Cincinnati, Ohio. What's on, Jay? Thanks for having me. And last but not least, Dr. Yoshio Nakawa from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Better to be here. Thank you. I do actually get a little nervous. It's sad because you should know your ABCs, and I do know my ABCs, but when I'm trying to like do it alphabetically on the fly, I, I do always get a little bit nervous. I'm going to mix something up, and someone will make fun of me. And uh, I will have to issue a retraction. Uh, we've never issued a retraction, so it's okay. Um, okay, so we're going to talk about some of the things we thought were most interesting from this year's meeting. And um, as a caveat, I don't... I, so first of all, who went in person? So I'll be very honest. I did not go in person. I watched some of the uh, um, talks virtually. Um, Sriji, you were there in person? No, I was uh, going to go in person, but then at the last minute backed out and went virtually. Um uh, yeah, so I saw some of the talks online. Basil, how about you? I was there in person. And Yoshi? I was a cowboy also. Uh, went there, got to hang out with Basil. It was great. Okay. So, I mean, we may have some different experiences. We, and Sriji can I talk about the virtual experience. I think the virtual experience is pretty good from a, a talk perspective. There's a couple of things. You know, I think they, maybe we, just, we can start there, you know, talking about um, hybrid meetings and meetings in general. Um, and uh, ASRS was there, but this was kind of like the biggest domestic ophthalmology meeting by definition that's happened since COVID-19, right? So Basil, I'm just curious, you know, what was that experience like on site? Um, how were things kind of handled? Did it feel similar to what it was like the previous times you've been there in New Orleans? Did it feel different? I'm curious how that experience was. Yeah, I think it was similar and different. I mean, it was, you know, similar convention center, people were there, it was good to see a lot of people, but obviously the numbers were greatly reduced compared to what it has been previously. Um, still got an opportunity to see a lot of people and talk to them, exchange information and ideas and all of that was really fun. Um, but it definitely wasn't up to the same volume and number of people that we're used to having. And Yoshi, in terms of, of how it did feel, I, I, I mean, and Basil referenced the size, it, it felt smaller. Was that true both on the attendee side as well as like the pharma side, like the exhibition, exhibition hall and, and was everything kind of downsized or was it kind of, because it's the same space, right? So it's, it's almost a little weird if it was significantly smaller, did it feel emptier? Yeah, definitely. It's the same long convention hall that, you know, it takes like an hour to walk down. <laughs> and uh, so the energy was definitely there. It was great seeing people, definitely a lot fewer people, especially the international crowd. Usually there's a huge international contingent for, at Academy that was almost non-existent. Uh, industry uh, participants were very few in number, but the you know exhibits were up, people were there. And, um, but the only time that I really felt, wow, it's kind of empty it was during subspecialty day during lunch when they usually uh, have all the tables out and it's packed. Uh, and it really wasn't. And, and Sriji, I mean, I'll comment a second, the virtual experience. I, I thought the virtual experience, I mean, we've all done a ton of virtual meetings. I thought it was pretty good. You know, the, I mean, think about basic things, quality of video and audio was good. Uh, the content, you know, 
how do you engage a virtual audience? They did a good job of having like an active chat and kind of people sending in questions. You know, the one thing I thought that would have been helpful um, if I just only critique, and, and this isn't unique to this meeting, but I think it's one of those things where sometimes it's hard to know who's talking. Like if, and, and that, I don't know how difficult that is in the moment for the tech team, but like if they even threw up like a subtitle or a caption with the talk, because the way it was displayed, at least in my screen screen, I don't know if you have the same experience, is during the talk, you could see the slides and you can hear the voice, but you didn't necessarily see the video of the speaker. So like if you logged in in the middle of a talk, unless you have the schedule in front of you, you'd be like playing that game of sitting there and being like, you know, is that Basil or is that Yoshi? Or like, cause you guys, you know, sound so similar. Um, but um Sriji, I don't know what your experience was watching from home. Yeah, I think um, it's, you know, we've done enough of these virtual meetings to know that the experience is always going to be a tick or two behind um, in person. It's just the nature of the beast. I think um, it, one, it's harder to stay, to be engaged in that um, setting. And two, you lose out on all, all the networking. You know, there's a lot of benefit to just seeing your colleagues and, and, and not only just for collaboration purposes, but just for social purposes. Um, and that's where um, a lot of the rich experience happens in these meetings that is lost, obviously, in a, in a virtual setting. So I think um, it's great for content sharing, especially if you can't make it or if you have concerns about going somewhere. Um, but you're going to lose out on the, um, I think, the the nuances of these meetings that um, are, are just uh, important in, in subtle ways. Yeah. Um, I mean, I... I'm a little jealous of you guys, um, Basil and, and Yoshi, um, because it, it feels like ages, right? Since we had like a, a proper in-person meeting, you know, I, I was at ASRS for like 20 hours in and out. I think a lot of people were in and out for ASRS. Um, and there's been a few other meetings along the way, but, but it'll be, it will be nice to get back hopefully in 2022 as people are vaccinated, although uh, we'll see what happens with the variants that are out there now. So let's get into content because people, I mean, they, they come here for content and again, they, we're not going to be comprehensive. I think it's hard to be comprehensive without being exclusionary in a short format um, to say these are the best or like this is the one talk. You should. I mean, there's a lot of information. So I always like to, we used to do this for meetings, even on site, say, hey, okay, like what did, what excited you or what was kind of most interesting to you from a discussion standpoint? So Sriji, you know, you threw out that there was a lot of discussion about Brolicism at, um, we've talked a lot about Brolicism at on this podcast um, we're probably either Novartis's best friend or worst enemy, depending on, on the episode and who you listen to. And that probably means hopefully we're doing a good job being balanced. But but there, what was sort of the discussion there? You know, this is something that's interesting. Novartis has drastically reduced kind of its team of representatives and sales reps for um, Berlicizumab, um, which might be an indication that they don't view it as profitable. I don't want to speak for the company, but but that it has not met goal. And I think that's fair to say that it's not met the goals. I, the last academy I was at was the 2019 meeting in San Francisco. And I remember that was when they had just kind of got, they were gearing for approval. They got approval. I think they built like some giant model of the eye out of, you know, in the exhibition hall, they were having dinners every night. I mean, it was a big deal. And it seems like eons ago, because it was pre-COVID, but but that's where we were the last time Academy was held in person. Fast forward to 2021, and now everyone's like, okay, risk benefit, risk benefit, risk benefit. What kind of things did you learn from the discussion this year? Yeah, actually, um, one of the um, uh, meeting, 
presentation types that I love the most are the debates, because I think you really get um, some really uh, meaningful insights from people that really know what they're talking about on this subject. And so Rishi Singh and Paul Han um, debated the, the benefits and, and risks of brolicizumab and whether it's worth it or not. And I think that, um, you know, obviously then they did an audience poll and I, I forget the exact percentage, but the overwhelming majority agreed that the benefits do not outweigh the risks for bolicizumab. Uh, Rishi brought up some good points that, you know, in certain patients, residual fluid, people that have this, you know, very um, untenable treatment burden, you could consider um, instituting bolicizumab. And I understand that. Um, and, you know, they do, you know, we know it's a powerful drug. It definitely can reduce uh, fluid. Um, and you can get people out to a 12 week um, treatment interval, which is great. But um, I thought, you know, Paul Hahn brought up a really good point, which is, you know, Novartis got together this safety council to their credit to try and figure out what is going on with this, but no real information has been released from that. It's very transparent, the, the numbers that they have um, and different data sets have shown that these numbers are in fact reproducible, but we're still not really getting to the meat of the issue, which is, so what are we going to do about it or what can we do about it? Yeah. And, and again, I don't want to beat a dead horse and, and maybe less about what we do. Cause I think we might find, I don't think any of us on this program are using Rolicizumab regularly, if at all, but I guess that question of that risk benefit debate, right? So is there a patient that fits sort of the mind? Is there a patient who fits in the Venn diagram where it's like, okay, they hit all these, check all these boxes and it's worth considering. I mean, Yoshi, I'll let you go first and then Basil. I mean, do I mean, you have any patients? I mean, you have any kind of patients or partners who have patients who are in a big practice who have like, they still use brolicizumab or, because, because, and I think there's two different arguments there, right? One argument was people who started them on brolicizumab post-market, they never had an issue. Then the events came out, but they said, well, look, I've already given them three shots and they've been fine. I'm just keep going. That I think is a different sort of conversation. The real conversation is the new patient, right? Are there patients who are new, who people are thinking, okay, this might be a good candidate for this drug? Uh, I think, you know, uh, in our practice, the majority of patients still on brolicizumab, very few are fall into that category that you mentioned that, you know, started earlier on before all this fiasco, but have been, have been doing well regarding new patients. Um, I think, you know, if you have a patient with progressive worsening despite monthly treatment with the current all the other modalities, I think it's a great option. Uh, but the problem is, the main problem I think here is that we don't have any data on how to predict this. And I think this is something that Novartis is working on and that'll be key to whether they succeed or fail. Uh, and, you know, uh, the wet AMD pipeline also has a lot of other promising agents coming up. So this isn't the only thing that uh, is gonna be available in the near future. Patients can wait. Yeah. Basil, any thoughts to add on top for brolicizumab at this point? Like, no, not really. I mean, I completely agree with uh, with Yoshi's assessment. I do have a couple of patients who um, hate the idea of monthly injections, and I've heard about brolicizumab. Some very well educated patients, and they've actually brought it up to me. I give them my perspective on it and kind of let them know the risks. Um, and I have not had any patients that have still uh, persisted in requesting that, but I do have uh, patients with partners in, in, uh, in the practice who, you know, if the patient brings it up and understands the risk and uh, they kind of fit the criteria where they're getting monthly injections and still have active disease, uh, then they go with it. So I, I don't think it's unreasonable now, but as Yoshi mentioned, we'll see what happens once uh, some of these medications in the pipeline uh, are ready to go. 
Yeah, yeah, this goes back to the discussion we had before about informed consent, right? Like informed consent, people are just like, oh, just do good informed consent. Your patient will tell you what they want. But you can tell somebody the same thing in two very different ways and completely change what they end up deciding doing, right? So I can tell someone, hey, you know, none of the current agents are working. We've got this drug. It works fantastic. It dries better. People extend out really far. They compared it head to head with this on-brand drug you've been on that's not as efficacious and patients did great. There are a few rare patients with side effects, but we see side effects with all drugs, but I would feel comfortable using this for my own eye in the situation you're in right now. I mean, how many patients are going to hear that and say, no, I'm not going to do treatment. I'm sure you guys may have more, especially if you go North to Philly, you know, she probably still have some patients, but like, no, 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 I don't want to do that. Um, but, but my point is like, there's nothing really that's a lie in that statement, right? That's kind of all factual. And you could also do what a lot of us do and say, Hey, we've got other options including this drug. We don't really utilize it much because of the side effects profile. It's unpredictable who gets side effects. And so we could do that. But my concern would be if you did fall into one of those people with side effects, the vision loss can be damaging and it can be something that's not easily treatable and it could be permanent. And if you say that to a person, then they're much more likely to say, Hey, oh, I actually don't want to do that. I mean, so I don't know if we should tie this conversation in a loop. I mean, the real question is, is because doctors, we do this all the time. We're like, well, the patient didn't want to do it or the patient did want to do it. But like, this goes to Basil's point. I mean, it's like, it comes down to us and how we phrase it to them. And so it seems like most of the people who at least attended the meeting voted are kind of in the second camp, not the first camp at this point. Yeah. And, you know, I think uh, to that phrasing point, I, I feel like most patients can very quickly tell um, how the doctor feels about a potential uh, treatment option. And I think all of us probably feel similar. Like we have to believe in something if we're really going to push it on our patients. And if we're hedging or I think, or if we don't necessarily believe in something, patients I think can pretty much see through that. And so I've, I've definitely um, had the discussion about brolocizumab, but even, you know, saying for, even for patients that are on monthly injections and still struggling with them. And I just, it's, it's, it's a hard sell. Cause I think if you have your own personal reservations very quickly, patients will be able to uh, kind of see through the, the, the weeds and figure that out. So let's shift gears. You know, we have a couple other talks to, to talk about. And actually the other one's another idea you brought up Sriji, which is just to kind of stay on the same role as pharma is um, RGX three through 14 um, Regenix bios, supercoroidals versus subretinal gene therapy for wet AMD. Um, disclosure is that I am an investigator on one of their upcoming trials. I did the training um, just as a disclosure before we talk about this. But um, tell us a bit, Sriji. So, like, what was the discussion? What data was shown? And what, what was kind of the feeling you got when you looked at it? And then maybe Basil and Yoshi can give us a little insight how people at the meeting talked about it, you know, outside of the podium if they heard anything. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, uh, this was, you know, Dr. Avery. Um, gave a talk on some of the data from uh, phase one and two um, results for uh, dose-dependent escalation of the RGX314 gene therapy. Um, and there were some promising results in terms of the ability to tolerate the treatment. And this is subretinal delivery first, um, but also treat reduction in treatment burden compared uh, to standard of care, uh, which I think they used, um, I think it was a flibercept as a standard of care in comparison. So they were able to show that the um, treatment was well tolerated and uh, they were able to reduce treatment burden. That part, and this data, you know, I'd seen um, 
uh, at least some of it before. But the part that I was really interested in um, was the super chordal delivery of RGX314. And they presented some of that early trial data for um, both AMD and DME. And that continued to show um, some promising results in small groups of patients without with dose-related um, side effects that were actually pretty well um, controlled uh, with minimal, uh, I think they just were talking about uh, using topical steroids to control most of these, um, these dose-related side effects. And that I thought was um, very intriguing because, you know, if we think about how we're going to talk to our patients about these options, it, it, we're always, it comes down to whether avoiding treatment justifies a surgery, right? But if you can do an in-office-based procedure, like supercoral drug delivery, and you can kind of almost have your cake and eat it too in terms of reduced number of injections, but efficacy of this um, VEGF-secreting um, uh, uh, gene therapy. So I was really intrigued by that. I think that as those uh, as the trials start enrolling for the larger trials, it'll be really interesting to see how, how, um, uh, how the results play out. What was the buzz on the street, so to speak, Yoshi? Did you hear anything in terms of what people were talking about before or after this talk? I mean, uh, I think the, the, the interesting thing, we talked about this before with drugs like this, is that you'll get press releases from the company before you see data sometimes. So like, you'll get like um, a press release that everyone circulates, which is usually not for doctors. We talked about this usually for investors or people looking at their stocks or their venture capitalists it doesn't have solid data in it. So we read it and we're like, okay, but show me more, but like, but it'll be like, Oh, like phase two data was promising or positive results were announced in this press release. But then we go to a meeting and we get some data. And so maybe it doesn't change anything in terms of, okay, people are like, okay, this is promising we're going to other trials, but any thoughts on top of what Triji was talking about and the idea of immunosuppression? Well, the interesting thing in that session was that uh, the, these uh, Regenex talks were, uh, right next to the Advarian talks, which were not as, you know, uh, happy data. So um, uh, in, in the, in, uh, the Advarium study, Infinity, looking at intravitreal gene therapy for diabetic macular edema, uh, the main concern was the high rates of inflammation and hypotony, even with uh, really terrible outcomes in the high-dose cohorts. And so you have that issue with intravitreal delivery. Uh, intravitreal is nice because it's in the office, but then you have inflammation. Uh, subretinal delivery, you have good efficacy, very low rates of inflammation, but it requires surgery. And so I think supercoroidal is a nice kind of, um, you know, it's an in-office procedure uh, without the crazy side effects as far as we know so far. Uh, and with supposedly good efficacy. So if this pans out, that's going to be the way to go, most likely, I think. Basil, what are, what are your thoughts? And, and let's talk a little bit about, um, I mean, we don't have to talk about Advera. I mean, it's funny, I, I just had a thought when Yoshi said happy data, I just had a vision of Yoshi, like as the lead character in a 70s inspired sitcom called Happy Data. happy data or something um basil any any additional thoughts i mean like i think this is going to be one of the interesting questions if and when we we've talked about it before but if if this happens let's say super doesn't happen right 
subretinal surgery and vitrectomy, it's kind of like what we talked about port. Now you're talking about, okay, we have in-office options, but you have to do injections versus, hey, now you got to go to surgery. It's very interesting to think about doctor and patient psychology. Never mind payer ideas and coverage and opportunity for this. Um, like, what are your thoughts on kind of who would be ideal candidates for this, assuming it, it pans out? Is it similar to PDS? Is it different? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a really interesting conversation, kind of determining that PDS is uh, a little bit different from the perspective that there's potentially long-term risks um, of exposure and infection and things like that. And so, um, you know, so kind of the, the tissue around the eye and kind of the overall health of the conjunctiva is a little bit more important when it comes to PDS and not as important when it comes to uh, the subretinal uh, delivery approach, for instance. Um, but I think outside of that kind of of thinking of who is a good candidate to go to the operating room um, is obviously going to be extremely important and what their overall health status is. Um, but outside of that, it's really going to be kind of the approaches and, and the side effect profile. So, you know, kind of as Yoshi said, the intravitreal injections and what that means from an inflammatory profile. Um, but I, I think the key thing is kind of at the end, Yoshi was like, if this pans out, and I think that's really kind of where we stand, the data is promising and it looks really interesting. And a lot of people are excited, including me, uh, but we still have a little ways to go before we know uh, what's actually gonna happen. So let's, let's, go, let's talk about a little more fun topic. As you brought up, Dave Brown gave a talk on RNFL OCT and PVD. Um, why did you think it was so interesting? Yeah, I thought it was just kind of a funny topic. Uh, Dave Brown is uh, just a hilarious person in general, and he kind of started off the talk by being like, this is going to be the most important six minutes of the meeting, and uh, and just kind of got the audience engaged. And, you know, I, I think it's interesting. It's not necessarily a lot of novel information, kind of using a, an RNFL OCT and then kind of the macular volume scan uh, to look at how PVDs develop, um, you know, separating from the papillomacular bundle first, and then uh, the fovea, and then finally kind of on the nasal side of the nerve. It's a lot of the stuff that we know, but I, I thought there were a couple of things that were actually interesting there. And I was um, sitting with a couple of the residents from my program and they were kind of interested in hearing about the 90 year old patients who do not have full PVDs at the time. And I think it was, you know, something like 15% of people in their 80s do not have a full PVD yet. So I just thought it was something that um, is important to keep in mind uh, when you're examining patients and you have kind of some preconceived notions about uh, what happens at different ages. And I think they were saying uh, in patients in their 20s, there's some percentage of them that have already uh, started initiating PVD. So um, I think uh, we get uh, OCTs on a lot of patients and sometimes we don't pay attention to the information that is available there. So it's just something good to, uh, to look at and kind of use the data that we have available to us when we're examining patients. So before uh, this uh, recording, I called my friend Ankur Shah, who's partners with Dave, uh, partly because I wasn't there for the talk. No offense to Dave, you know, I really wanted to, but, and uh, I just wanted to get kind of like the inside scoop on how they came up with this idea. And it's, it's been something that the group has been doing for a while and they compiled the cases. And uh, initially when you just hear the title, it doesn't seem super groundbreaking, but it actually kind of is. I think it is a big deal. And I think it has a lot of implications for our understanding of PVD progression and pathogenesis, VMT, macular hole, even retinal detachment surgery, certainly like, you know, in younger patients, even older patients, how we approach surgery. And we call ourselves retina surgeons, but we're actually all vitreous surgeons. And I think it's, everything is all about the hyaloid. And Encore has been getting this on all of his new patients and I might start doing so also. 
Yeah, I think in terms of uh, evaluating people from a surgical approach, um, especially if they have VMT and, and whatnot, kind of identifying where you want to go to try and uh, lift the hyoid. I thought it was something that was helpful as well. Um, oftentimes, kind of right at the temporal margin of the nerve is where the vitreous is furthest away from the retina. And so um, just kind of documenting that on, on OCT can sometimes be helpful in the conversation with fellows as well. Yeah, and I, I, it's, it's interesting because it's not like that technology hasn't been available and it seems like people have been doing it in their practices at least, but it's not something that, like you said, it's interesting because it's not like it's groundbreaking, but it, it's actually useful to show some data on it um, because retina is a field where people just do things sometimes and they're very smart and intelligent, but then no one talk, tells anyone else or publishes on it. And then you have to like talk to a lot of people and then you're like, well, why don't we just like report this or someone talk about it? Um, some of the smartest people in our field don't go on the podium or don't present or don't talk about things because it doesn't fit into doesn't fit into what they want out of their career, right? And then the only way you kind of get that osmosis or dissemination is maybe through other people in the group or people talk at a partner meeting or in an academic institutional meeting and they get that information. Um, just a quick transition. Um, it, you know, Basil, the other talk you referenced, and this gets, we're getting into China now, less about medical things and more about logistical things. We've talked before about um, Justin Gottlieb has written in Retinal Physician in a previous article about structuring sort of vitreo retinal fellowship guidelines and like minimums and, and sort of what is needed for like, what would you want for an accredited quote unquote retinal surgeon? That's been a big push of his via the ASRS. Others have really talked about this um, what I, I, I didn't have a chance to catch stock and I'll have to go back and watch it. What, what did he talk about that was rele relevant right now and, and looking forward for the future? Yeah, so he gave kind of just a basic overview of how the ASRS uh, views uh, fellowships and then kind of what there is in terms of guidelines uh, for uh, for the fellowship training and talked a little bit. Um, about the Fellowship Compliance Committee that the ASRS, Macula Society, and Retina Society all kind of uh, vouch for. Um, and they talk about, you know, compliance is uh, voluntary and about 70% of the programs are actually involved in it. And really just at the end of training, they do a little bit of a survey and kind of assess um, fellows' perspectives on this. And, um, and then, you know, fellowship directors are able to identify who they are and they can have a little bit of a conversation and they can kind of uh, suggest ways to improve the fellowship program um, to, to make it more of a unified experience. Um, and then they kind of talked about that they don't really have a role in terms of determining which one of the fellows or if the fellows should graduate into full membership of ASRS, but more just that as long as they complete the fellowship, that's what's important. But they were kind of encouraging most of the programs to, uh, to join the AUPO um, Fellowship Compliance Committee. And I, I think it's just a really interesting concept. We obviously want to make sure that um, fellows applying to programs have an understanding of what kind of training they're going to get and to make sure that they meet um, not, not minimums in terms of volume, but minimums in terms of the experience to, uh, to be able to be a competent uh, retina surgeon. But I think that's one of the most challenging things. There's no, there's not really a lot of good guidelines to determine what uh, is necessary for you to be a competent surgeon. And so I think it's just kind of one of the challenging things. And I think the discussion is always a little bit interesting as a result. It, it always makes me laugh because I think you go to two people who are in next door offices in the same department at a big program, and they would have completely different ideas about what makes like a better training or better competent surgeon. So I'm curious, you know, I, I think this is something 
Um, you've had some interest in sort of the educational part and organizational part. Um, I know Dr. Sternberg, one of your one of your mentors there. I, I've talked to him about this before. I mean, what are your thoughts on this? Like, do you think that this is something A, that is feasible, B, that is likely, and C, is is it good for the field or not, right? And it, 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 I guess it depends what form it takes, but what's your overall impression of this? Are you a retina libertarian or are you a um, uh, retina power to the people? Well, yeah. I'll, I'll, def- I'll definitely sidestep that, that question. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, I, I, it's it funny, um, I was actually, Yoshi and I were both actually uh, at, um, at ASRS uh, when um, they ran, they had like a fellowship um, kind of uh, meeting that Justin uh, Gottlieb ran. And it was just kind of going over a very similar um, uh, conversation, which is things like, you know, AOPO, AOPO compliance and linking those with certain standards or fellowships. And it's actually, you, as you hear some of the really experienced fellowship directors talk about this issue, it's very complex. It On the surface, it seems, you know, this should be easy, you know, do you set, set up some standards and we all kind of have some general broad idea about what fellowships should be able to provide to trainees. Um, but when you get into the, the nitty gritty, it's actually really complex. And there was actually a lot of heated debate about, you know, in a very short period of time about all of the pros and cons of um, overarching guidelines in this setting. And I think it's something that actually, um, I didn't know about this, but they've been debating for years, trying to see how they could, how they could work this into um, almost like standardizing education for the fellows. So to answer your original question, you know, feasibility is a tough one. Do I think it's a good idea? In general, I think, you know, it is a good idea, but implementation is something that they're gonna to have to be really deft about because I think you can step on a lot of people's toes um, if you're not careful. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, Basil, um, you brought up the idea and Yoshi, I'm gonna get your take in a second um, of like what, again, what form this takes is, is an interesting question, right? And, and and he wants people to be compliant with the APO. APO doesn't really have strong guidelines, you know, so I think it's kind of a bare minimum, but I think they want more than that. Yoshi, what are your thoughts? Where do you fall on the spectrum of, of this idea? Uh, you know, like you alluded to, uh, retina, we're a field where we have a lot of different ways of approaching different cases. We have a lot of, you know, strong personalities too. And we're all hardworking. We all think the way we do it is the best way. And so uh, I think we have to be sensitive about that kind of stuff. Uh, but I think uh, the, 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 the overarching goal is, you know, uh, protecting our field, protecting our patients, providing the best education. And so I think guidelines do make sense. Uh, I think right now, uh, when I talk to residents who are applying for fellowships, I usually tell them that, you know, they're, uh, it's great that they're going into retina. You have a lot of different uh, fellowship opportunities and the vast majority of fellowships in the country are amazing. And I think retina people in general, we, we are very passionate about education. And so all, most of the fellowships are really good. It's, I think, you know, just making sure that the outlier fellowships aren't, you know, too out of the, you know, standard deviation. Um, I think that's probably uh, one of the intense uh, quality control to some degree. Uh, but as a field, I'd say we're pretty awesome. Yeah, I didn't really give you guys my opinion. I mean, I, I have, I've given my opinion on this show before. I mean, I think... It's tough because I'm not opposed. Like, you brought up the idea of stepping on people's toes or getting people upset. Like, I, 
I understand politics and I understand people's feelings, but if it's better for the field and better for the patients and better for the trainees, especially, then, you, you know, a wise man once said, you can't break, what does it make an omelet without breaking a few eggs? I almost said break eggs without making an omelet. And you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. You, you, you have to sometimes tear some things down to make them better, right? Um, on the other hand, I'm just concerned because I feel like everything in medicine just adds up to more work and more bureaucracy and more paperwork and more more forms and more surveys and more um, documentation and logging in a field that the people don't, A, don't derive energy from that. This is not a field that attracted people based on it, unlike some other fields and professions. B, people aren't reimbursed on those things, right? So they're not even incentivized to do these sort of things, which is okay. I think most of us didn't go to medicine for the money, but like, it's not like we're lawyers, we're billing per hour that we're filling out these logs or surveys or whatever. And then C, the trainees already have so many different things they have to keep track of. They're probably the most burdened, they're the most vulnerable group. And now you're imposing an additional thing, say, okay, you gotta log this and this system and you gotta submit this paperwork and do this for your licensure. And now maybe we go and you have to present the thesis and it's like, it's like, dude, like, do you know how many things I'm doing right now as a fellow? Like, forget the rest of my life, forget all my loans that are accumulating in the bank, forget everything else going on with me. Just at work, I have to take care of patients. I have to sign charts. I have to prepare orders and charts for my attendings. I have to take call. Maybe I'm also preparing for cases and learning how to operate in the midst of all of this. And now I have to do another requirement on top of everything else. So my worry, and this is my cynicism, Sriji, is that it's going to just be added on top. It's not going to substitute for the things they already have to do. And that's why I'm a little inherently suspicious and cynical of any additional sort of requirements, because I don't think it's going to have the effect people want. As Yoshi said, most programs and most training programs are awesome. You're not going to force the, the very small percentage into compliance. You're just gonna put more burdens on the people who are actually at the majority of those programs which are great, and maybe just, again, contribute to more of these problems as physicians. But again, that's a very dark, dark view of the world. Feel free to disagree, Sriji. No, I think you're, I think, especially if it's overly burdensome, programs are going to not view this as a benefit to the field, but another um, checkbox that they just need to quickly go through. And what ends up happening is you accumulate data that's just poor data. Um, because people are not paying attention to what they're doing and they're not actually taking it seriously, but they're just doing it to get it off their table, right? And so this is another thing that was brought up um, before, which is that if we burden, excessively burden people that are already excessively burdened, we're not actually, you know, creating any increased functionality in the system, right? We're just making things harder to interpret. Aslan, do you have thoughts on this issue? No, I mean, this... uh this conversation is kind of a rabbit hole I went down internally after hearing the talk. Um, and so it's just somewhat validating to know that uh, my internal dialogue is uh, the same thoughts that other people are having as well. Well, last thing, Yoshi, you wanted to talk, Mike Tracy, who was one of your attendings at, at, at Beaumont ARC as a fellow, going back to fellowship, um, received an award at the Academy. And you just wanted to say a few words about that award and kind of Dr. Tracy. So I'll give you the room for a few minutes. Well, cool. thank you. So that was personally the highlight for me. 
And the laureate awards, the, the biggest award that Academy gives out and all the previous awardees, there are only a couple of them, it's like 20 something, have been like true luminaries. Like the first year this award was given out, it was Kelman who invented FACO, Mackimer, obviously vitrectomy, and Scapins, indirect ophthalmoscope scuttle buckling. And then the year after was like Don Gass and Marshall Parks, like father of uh, uh, pediatric ophthalmology. And Dr. Rosa, who invented the YAG laser. So these are like legit legends and Mike's a living legend, you know? And uh, one of the highlights of my career kind of going forward and forever is being able to call myself a, a Tracy fellow. And as you guys might know, he's the father of modern pediatric retinal surgery. And when, um, just to give you a little background about him, you know, when McNamara was working on the vitrectomy platform, Mike, Mike was right there next to him as his fellow. And by applying closed eye vitrectomy to pediatric retinal diseases, he revolutionized our field. And before, most of these cases were inoperable. Uh, you know, Tatsuo Hirose was kind of an outlier. He was at Retinal Associates. He was the master of open sky vitrectomy. He had tremendous results, but he was kind of an anomaly. And what Mike did was make these eyes fixable. And he also introduced lens sparing vitrectomy in pediatric retinal surgery, which wasn't a thing before. Uh, before, so you had to take out the cornea, the lens out to access the tissues for uh, open sky vitrectomy or scleral buckle, everything, including ROP. And ROP is now a vitrectomy-based procedure because of him. And Mike's trained a lot of fellows, many who have gone on to fix a lot of kids throughout the country, throughout the world. And whenever I have my toughest cases uh, of stage five disease in Philly, I always think of the Beaumont trio, you know, like Mike Tracy, Tony Capone, and Kim Drenzer. And Mike's hands are really, truly, really magical. You have to like kind of be there and understand what he's doing to realize it as a second year fellow. As a first year fellow, I didn't really understand what was happening. You know, he would just magically fix these nasty TRDs. Um, and, you know, speaking of uh, the world, Mike always had a whole gang of observers, whether they're from the US or internationally and following him everywhere. And each, uh, you know, we would make skits at the end of fellowship and we would usually kind of portray that. Uh, so his international impact has been really tremendous. And most of the big pediatric retina surgeons in the world have been directly, usually directly influenced by him. And uh, he's also made a lot of contributions to adult retina also. He did a lot of work early on in uh, vitriolysis. And so he was working on it because he wanted to uh, uh, chemically release the hyloid in pediatric vitrectomy. And he was doing that for years. And that was translated into adults for VMT treatment. And it was licensed, became Jetria, uh, something we don't clinically use too much anymore, but iterations of it you know, might happen in the future. And so at Beaumont, you know, the group has a lab also. And this is a prior practice running a lab. And so it leads to another one of his contributions, I think, which along with his partners is the concept of academic private practice. And uh, George Williams, his best friend, who introduced him uh, at the award ceremony, and one of his quotes is that being academic is a mindset, and you don't have to limit yourself in being in the university setting to make contributions to our field. And uh, our group at Wills is very similar also. And the field has, I think, evolved the past couple of decades where a lot of private practices now are making a lot of scientific contributions. And people like Mike and George were really at the you know, a big part of the foundation for this kind of philosophy. And so I could go on and on about, you know, how awesome Mike is, but if I can maybe like finish with a, an anecdote, uh, just to kind of say what kind of uh, doctor he is. And so um, I have uh, one of my young patients, one young adult patients with cerebral palsy, and he's had a history of uh, ROP detachments. 
uh, and 20 something years ago, he flew up to Philly to be fixed and uh, Mike fixed him as a kid. And he's uh, 20 something now. He's not very expressive because he has cerebral palsy and he barely talks. And when I met him for the first time, because I follow him now, when I mentioned Mike Tracy, uh, the young guy, he, he's usually expressionless, but his, his face just lit up. And he's like, oh, you're Dr. Tracy's friend. And, um, you know, having that emotional impact, that's kind of the doctor that I want to be like also. And uh, Mike Tracy is my inspiration and is for countless others. And I always get goosebumps kind of uh, sharing that uh, story. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's impressive. And, and I caught um, some of that presentation and uh, dude, I, I, I'm really fighting the urge to make the joke because it's who I am, that we can trace back all of Yoshi's accomplishments to his mentor. But, but I did it now and now I feel stupid, but I couldn't, I, I just, I got it in my head and I had to do it. Um, you know, um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's always, I, those are some of the best talks. I think I like to go to like the Stratsma award, like, um, that's like the residency education award, the laureate award. I mean, these are always really humbling. I remember when Kirk Paco got the award from the ASRS, that was like a great sort of presentation and talk because these are like things you don't know about these people, you know, the kind of the story in the background. I didn't know a lot of the things you just told us, Yoshi, about Mike Tracy, right? You just kind of know that they're impressive. You don't know why they're impressive, right? I would compare it to like in professional sports, you know, younger athletes may say, oh, I've heard of so-and-so, I know they're really, really good or they're supposed to be really good, but they don't really understand why, right? They weren't there, they never met them, they didn't see them, they don't know all the, the things that led to their success. So I think the only thing left to do is for the listeners to put odds on who is the least likely on this podcast to win the Laureate Award. It's clearly going to be me as a front runner, um, but um, we'll have to leave it there. Um, if, go ahead. So, So one of the things that I was gonna say actually is that um, the coolest part about that is listening to Yoshi, somebody who is extremely accomplished um, at this point in his career, who I look up to, kind of talking so uh, remarkably well about somebody else. And, and, uh, and so I'm like excited um, to, to see the future and kind of see how these things play out and the people from our generation who, who end up making significant marks on the field like that. Um, I think it's, uh, it's going to be really interesting to see. And, uh, and I'm like really excited that I have an opportunity to kind of, uh, hang out and talk to people like you who, who, um, are really impressive and, and, uh, and do a great job as well. Um, and hopefully I can at some point in the future uh, kind of wax eloquently like Yoshi just did about uh, some of you guys. <laughs> yeah, I'm putting my money on uh, Yoshi as a future laureate award winner. I mean, we should almost, I think we should take a screenshot of this. So one day in like 20 years, someone will be like, oh my God, it's one of those old school two-dimensional photos that people talk about. <laughs> and there's Yoshi Unakawa and there's Basil Williams. It looked, that's Sriji Patel. And, and that's that other, who's that other guy? <laughs> <laughs> it would be like the capture would be like these three and unknown um all right i will let you guys go um i don't want to talk to sriji about the bucks it's uh, we're just not going to talk about it. we can have that conversation um, anytime you like just let me know <laughs> i don't want to have that conversation i don't want to talk about football it's depressing okay guys have a great night thanks for your time and thanks for recapping uh AO with us good night guys
feeling? This is straight from the cutter's <laughs> mouth. <laughs>